oh, look at this. It proves that language models cannot generalize. And this is basically insane. <laughs> Instead of Helen of Troy, I was thinking this is like this tweet is like the Helen of Transformers. If we start to mislead or like, you know, embrace pretty obviously wrong headed conclusions about what is, it cannot be good <laughs> for our downstream discourse of what should be done about it. The concern here is that this is a Trojan horse or a wedge into sort of a governing body that has the reputational credibility and, and then the legal ability to regulate who or who not can, can innovate. The alternative is we're gonna shit on the people that are trying to establish some best practices. Then that's what's gonna bring down the heavy handed regulation. If you wanna prevent that regulation, show me that there's no problem. Show me that you have it under control. This may be the time to build, but it's definitely not the time for ideology. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. All good on your end? Yeah, I got a few bones to pick today, but um, aside from that, you know, everything's going well. It's been um, a little bit of a quiet period the last, you know, 10 days as I've really been digging into all the open AI releases and, you know, trying to feel out what they're good for and what they're not good for. I think that'll be subject of another episode because I want to do at least a couple more experiments before I give a, a summary of my findings. One spoiler is the, the vision component, which I was expecting to be a huge unlock, I think really is going to be a huge unlock. And in part, that's also because it's quite cheap. Um, you can pass in 12 images for one cent. And um, then you do pay also for what it generates in response to that. But 12 images for a cent gives you, you know, a lot of ability to kind of take slices out of videos or just take periodic screenshots of stuff, you know, all sorts of monitoring solutions. A lot of passive stuff, I think, can happen with the vision because it's just so easy to like collect that sort of information. And since it's so uh, effective and cheap at processing it, I think it's going to be a, a really big deal. But um, that's not what we're here to talk about primarily today. Basically, I have just had a, a burr in my saddle, you might say, over the last uh, week or so with a couple of aspects of the AI discourse online where I'm just like, guys, let's all be better than this. Um, so I want to kind of take these topics one by one, take them apart, you know, kind of analyze a bunch of the different contributions that people made to the ongoing discussion and kind of, you know, give my message to all these people. And again, you can uh, hold me accountable as we go. Before doing that, I wanted to take a moment and this might become a bit of a ritual to uh, give a, you know, a, a strong uh, kind of nod and, uh, you know, pay, pay respects to the value of uh, accelerating the adoption of existing AI technology. And I had kind of two findings, you know, that were just uh, relevant in the last few days that I, I wanted to highlight, if only as a way to kind of establish, you know, some hopefully credibility and common ground for the critiques that are to come. But not only that, because I think these are also just like, you know, meaningful results. So the first one comes out of Waymo. And they did this study with their insurance company which is Swiss Re, which is a giant insurance company. 
So here, I'm just going to read the whole abstract. It's a, a kind of a long paragraph, but read the whole abstract of this paper and just you know reinforce because it's kind of a follow up to some previous discussions, especially the one with Flow um, about like you know let's get these self drivers on the road. Uh, so here's some stats to back that up. This study compares the safety of autonomous and human drivers. It finds that the Waymo One autonomous service is significantly safer towards other road users than human drivers are as measured via collision causation. The result is determined by comparing Waymo's third-party liability insurance claims data with mileage and zip code calibrated Swiss Re human driver private passenger vehicle baselines. A liability claim is a request for compensation when someone is responsible for damage to property or injury to another person, typically following a collision. Liability claims reporting and their development is designed to, uh, using insurance industry best practices to assess crash causation, contribution, and predict future crash contributions. Okay, here's the numbers. In over 3.8 million miles driven without a human being behind the steering wheel in rider-only mode, the Waymo driver incurred zero bodily injury claims in comparison with the human driver baseline of 1.11 claims per million miles. The Waymo driver also significantly reduced property damage claims to 0.7 claims per million miles in comparison to the human driver baseline of 3.26 claims per million miles. Similarly, in a more statistically robust data set of over 35 million miles during autonomous testing operations, the Waymo driver, together with a human autonomous specialist behind the steering wheel, Monitoring the automation also significantly reduced both bodily injury and property damage uh, per million miles compared to the human driver baselines. So zero uh, injuries caused out of over 3 million miles driven. That would have been an expectation of over three injuries for the human baseline and under 25% the property damage ratio for the Waymo system versus the human baseline. Now there's a lot of stuff, you know, we have had a couple of episodes on these like self-drivers recently. So a lot going on there. This is not necessarily fully autonomous. There's some, you know, intervention that's happening in different systems. It's not entirely clear how much, you know, intervention is happening. I'm not sure if they're claiming zero intervention here as they get to these stats or, you know, kind of the result of a system which may at times include some human intervention. But I just want to go on record again as saying, this sounds awesome. I think we should embrace it. And, you know, a sane society would actually go around and start working on improving the environment to make it more friendly to these systems. And there's a million ways we could do that, you know, from trimming some trees in my neighborhood so the stop signs aren't hidden at a couple intersections, you know, on and on from there. So that's part one of my accelerationist prayer. Part two, here is a recent result on the use of GPT-4V for vision in medicine. In our new preprint, this is a tweet from uh, one of the study authors, we evaluated GPT-4V on 934 challenging New England Journal of Medicine medical image cases and 69 clinico-pathological conferences. GPT-4V outperformed human respondents overall and across all difficulty levels, skin tones, and image types except radiology where it matched humans. GPT-4V synthesized information from both images and text, but performance deteriorated when images were added to highly informative text, which is an interesting uh, detail and caveat for sure. 
Unlike humans, GPT-4V used text to improve its accuracy on image challenges, but it also missed obvious diagnoses. Overall, multimodality is promising, but context is key and human AI collaboration studies are needed. My response to this, though this you know, comes out of Harvard Medical School, by the way. Um, so, you know, last I checked, still a pretty credible uh, institution, despite some, um, you know, recent knocks to the brand value, perhaps, of the university as a whole. My response to this, you know, which I, I put out there again, to, to try to establish common ground with the accelerationists, even more so than, than self-driving cars, you know, where you can get legitimately hurt. When an AI gives you a second opinion diagnosis, that's something that you can scrutinize. You can, you know, talk it over with your human doctor. There's a million things you can do with it. And so as we see that these systems are starting to outperform humans, I'm like, this is something that really should be made available to people now. And I say that, you know, on an ethical kind of consequentialist outcomes oriented basis. I would even go a little farther than the the study author there who says, you know, well, more studies are needed. I'm like, hey, let's I would put this in the hands of people now. If you don't have a doctor, it sounds a hell of a lot better than not having a doctor. And if you do have a doctor, I think the second opinion and the discussion that might come from that, you know, is is probably clearly on net to the good. Um, will it make some obvious mistakes? Yes. Obviously, the human doctors, unfortunately, will, too. Hopefully, they won't make the same obvious mistakes because that's when real bad things would happen. But I would love to see, you know, GPT-4V take more, uh, you get more and more traction in a medical context and definitely think people should be able to use it for that purpose. So that brings us to the close of part one. I'm not expecting any major challenges there, but how do I do in terms of establishing my uh, accelerationist uh, bona fides? Yeah, I think you've, uh, you've done a good job. You've uh, extended the olive branch and uh, now, uh, now we wait with bated breath. all right so we got two things that i really wanted to and people who listen to this podcast if you're listening to this you're going to have seen some of this already on uh online right if you're if you're certainly if you're on twitter you've seen this kind of thing so the first thing was this paper that came out of google DeepMind, and was kind of became a sort of super viral thing where the notion was google DeepMind research shows that LLMs can't generalize. You know, this kind of thing, it's, it's, they, they fly off and they're, you know, they're, see, they're reaching millions of people before you know, can even kind of dig into the paper and figure out, well, what is this even actually talking about? So naturally, you know, I'm a few days late by the time I get around to reading the thing and, and really understanding what's going on. But basically, you know, I think this discourse was just totally misguided took a very small study with a very sort of narrow and focused result, which is like a fine, you know, line of inquiry and a fine, you know, thing to publish um, and kind of seized on one sentence of it, which I'll read and blew it way out of proportion in a way that I think is like fundamentally misleading most of the people who are encountering, you know, all the surrounding tweets. Just to get into a little bit like what this paper actually said. It's amazing because it's a very, very narrow and focused study. The actual title of the paper, for one thing, is Pre-Training Data Mixtures Enable Narrow Model Selection Capabilities in Transformer Models. I think that that framing right off the top is super interesting. The authors are talking about curating training data in order to enable certain behavior. But the result got flipped into, okay, 
if you set up your pre-training data in a certain way, then you may be able to control what the model can and can't do. That flipped to, oh, LLMs can't generalize. And that is just not something that follows uh, from this paper. And here's where I do think the authors kind of overstepped a bit. The key sentence that everybody's like highlighting and sharing around is, in the regimes studied, we find strong evidence that the model can perform model selection among pre-trained function classes during in-context learning at little extra statistical cost, but limited evidence that the model's in-context learning behavior is capable of generalizing beyond their pre-training data. And that's probably worth breaking down a little bit more. The idea of the model can perform model selection. That basically means that it can identify what kind of problem it is facing at a given moment in time and apply the right lessons learned from its training to that, you know, that particular type of problem. In this case, it's so narrow, it's so toy. So they have two kinds of data that they feed into this language model that they train. One is points on a line. It can be any line, you know, just, just draw a straight line, take some points out of it. That can be what the model is faced with. And then its job is to predict you know, so you have like XY coordinate, XY, 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 you have these points that it's given. Now give it another X and it has to predict the Y. Basically, can it learn the function represented by these points? If they're all on a line, then the function is a line. Can it, you know, can it extrapolate and predict from a given X coordinate what the Y coordinate point on the line is going to be? The other task in the same data mix is just sine curves. So if you give it, you know, some points from this sine curve and give it another X value, can it predict what that value is going to be given, you know, that X coordinate, X, Y, X, Y, X, Y, X, Y, X, it has to predict the next Y. So it's the same task. And there's just two different kinds of functions that it's supposed to learn, straight lines and sine curves. And it has no trouble learning those and doing them well. What they then look at and say, oh, well, here's where it kind of falls short is what if we put those two things on top of each other? What if we take the a combination, you know, a linear combination of a sine curve plus a line. And you can just imagine that as a sine curve that's gradually going up or a sine curve that's gradually going down, because that's what happens if you add a sine curve and a line together. And there they did find that it wasn't succeeding on that task. Going back to the title of the paper, pre-training data mixtures enable narrow model selection capabilities and transformer models. What they're saying is if you take these two kinds of things, and you just train on those two kinds of things, then what we see at runtime is it can very effectively distinguish between those two kinds of things and do both. It will recognize which problem it's facing. And then additionally, when we tried overlaying those two problems at the same time, it wasn't really able to do it in the regimes studied. But everybody seems to have kind of blown again past this notion of like in the regime studied and is saying, oh, look at this. It proves that language models cannot generalize. And this is basically insane. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlined accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind, 
so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs, one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash cognitive. That's netsuite.com slash cognitive to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash cognitive. Omnikey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omnikey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. For one thing, this is not the kind of generalization that's really in question in the broader debates around like how powerful is AI going to get and you know to what extent and how should it be regulated. Nobody is really at this point seriously questioning frontier models ability to take like a little bit of concept A and a little bit of concept B and blend them together, right? And we've all seen a bazillion of those examples where, you know, you say write a poem in the style of Shakespeare about, you know, the 90s Jordan Bulls or whatever. And it's like, there probably isn't a lot out there. You know, that's not something it's likely seen in exact combination in the training data. You can try all of these you want, and it can clearly do them. So it can clearly take like a problem of a certain structure and, you know, a, a subject or a problem of another structure and find some meaningful combination of those and work with that. Like the, the frontier models can't. The little toy models that they designed in the study didn't, but clearly just get your hands on ChatGPT and you don't even need to pay for the $20 a month to see that these kinds of little of column A, little of column B combinations do clearly work. It's clearly within the capabilities that they have. So, you know, okay, it's it's fine, right? You, you did this thing, you found this one thing, it's a toy model, it's a toy problem. I do think there's something interesting there. If you design your data set carefully, you may be able to start to get some control over what models can and can't do. But you have to design the data set carefully to do that. It's not just a generic notion that it'll never happen. And again, like just broad, you know, kind of experience. And at this point, like common sense kind of shows that. The real questions about whether frontier models can generalize are not about that. They're like, can they learn things that people don't know? You know, can they can they infer things from training data that uh, you know that are unobvious even to the world's leading experts? And this doesn't really have anything to say about that. I'm afraid. At most, it says like if you strategically keep certain data sets out of training, then you may you know you may prevent AIs from like generalizing into those domains. And indeed, that is like a, a real interesting proposal. I think right now, the one of the more you know, credible and concerning uh, near-term frontier model risks, in my view, is the idea that people might be able to use them to create pandemic agents. And people would say, well, who would want to do that? And, you know, look, there's a lot of crazy people out there for sure. If you give everybody, you know, a sort of biochemistry and, you know, and uh, virology expert, uh, I think somebody is going to, in fact, use it for bad purposes. So there's a proposal that's like, okay, well, maybe we should just kind of exclude most academic virology from what language models are trained on. And, you know, maybe we could still have some specialist ones that, you know, the actual biologists use. But does that, is that 
you know, a knowledge base that really everybody needs to have in their pocket, um, or maybe, you know, it should be a little bit more closely held. That is at this point, you know, largely academic discussion. I don't even think the the policy discussions, well, inner circle, you know, think tank kind of policy discussions have gotten that far. I'm not sure that any actual, you know, governmental policy um, discussions have quite reached that level of nuance yet. But, you know, it's at least interesting. And this does support that something like that, you know, is probably makes sense. Um, if you didn't already think it made sense, which just on general priors, like <laughs> it kind of always made sense. But this study certainly, you know, gives a little bit of a, a bolster to that. But again, it's just a totally different kind of generalization that people are you know, on, the, on the far doom case that people are really worried about than sort of the ability to like combine two somewhat different problem sets. Okay, that was all just discussion. Sure enough, somebody already reproduced this paper. And I want to give credit to this person, Samuel Muller, I believe. So this person in a collab notebook. So this is also a great example of how you know, some of these small things, hobbyists, you know, individuals with literally no compute, but just like a, you know, a little, you know, ephemeral uh, uh, virtual machine in the Google cloud can reproduce some of these results. So this guy, Samuel Muller goes out and does this and shares all the code and, you know, it's all kind of open to look at. Basically what he finds is if you add a bit of noise to the training data, and do everything else, you know, to, as far as he could tell, the exact same way that they did it in the original paper, then it does generalize. And you get over this hump of not being able to, to handle the sort of combination case of the lines and the sine curves. And this is like one of the oldest techniques in terms of making AIs more robust. You know, going back to kind of early deep learning, and I'm not a super, you know, super uh, expert historian on the timeline of these advances in, you know, the early 2010s. But it's been known for a long time that if you want to make your computer vision systems more robust, you train them with various perturbations. You have the original, you have like a, you know, a weird um, compression of it where the aspect ratio changes, you add noise to it, you maybe add some waviness to it, you can do all these sort of programmatic manipulations that are all kind of weird. But when the AI sees all those variations and is still able to extract the signal through that noise, then your downstream performance get, gets a lot better. It seems to sort of, you know, make the concepts more robust and kind of prevent the like super uh, specific overfitting on a particular data set. And so that's the, that's the technique that this guy in a collab notebook uh, applies, just adding a little bit of noise to these points that are either on a sine curve or on the line. And then sure enough, you know, you see significant generalization. It prevents the overfitting and it, you know, kind of seems to start to work. That didn't take long. That took like a couple days. Uh, but I'm not sure how many people saw that. Um, certainly some, you know, decent number. Of this this tweet did get, um, a, you know, a healthy number of likes and certainly reached some people. But I think it was, you know, definitely not a shining moment in AI discourse. And I'll read you a few uh, tweets and, and give a couple of responses to them. Uh, but first, let me just kind of pause there and say, does that overview of the research itself uh, make sense or any, any questions on kind of what was found, what was claimed, um, you know, then what was kind of subsequently uh, found in the reproduction? 
that was a good overview. I'm just curious if um, if people like Amjad, who you know, you'll mention this to me in a second, were, were here, what would they, how would they comment on your overview? Perhaps what I'm trying to get at is like, what is the actual substantive um, disagreement or the, the crux of the of the difference of opinion as it relates to the, this this paper? Well, we might have to have him on to find out. You know, I think I I really resist the temptation to psychologize other people's uh, AI takes, um, you know, and, and try to engage with the arguments themselves. I think you know what we'll kind of see here over a course of a few tweets is that you know mostly arguments are not really being made. <laughs> Instead, this you know sort of little, you know, highlighted one sentence from this very narrowly focused paper about how you can engineer your training data to control what in, you know, under certain circumstances, if you can avoid the noise in this case, as it turns out, then you can, you know, have more control over what your model capabilities are. Mostly people are just kind of using that as I think a prop to make a more political point or somewhat of a like I'm kind of cooler than the crowd sort of point. I don't want to go too far in terms of, uh, you know, interpreting what people would say. And if there are better arguments, you know, I'd love to hear it. You know, there is, I think, also pretty good. And I give credit to the study authors, actually, because I think their engagement has has been quite uh, productive. So one of the, you know, after all, there's a, the the first tweet that kind of launched a, a thousand, um, thousand tweets, you know, the <laughs> instead of Helen of Troy, I was thinking this is like, this tweet is like the Helen of Transformers. The, the original tweet was like pretty mundane and just quoted the thing and then said, new paper by Google provides evidence that Transformers, GPT, et cetera, cannot generalize beyond their training data. And then that became the thing that like everybody, you know, was quoting and, and tweeting on and whatever. And the original author, uh, Steve Yadlowski, uh, he says, this paper is continuing to make the rounds. It seems like maybe our paper on in-context learning has been taken out of context. So, you know, I think they were kind of shocked, honestly, that, you know, this kind of three-person paper that they, you know, put out all of a sudden became like the, the supernova, super viral thing that it did. And I think some of the, you know, some other interesting commentary, uh, somebody said, um, in fact, it was Adam D'Angelo uh, from Quora, who uh, I think, you know, having served on the OpenAI board at one time, if not still, you know, building products in this area, certainly, you know, is paying a lot of attention to what language models can and can't do. Uh, his comment was, this paper, a very narrow result, which I'm sure only holds under a lot of assumptions, true, um, since since proven true, I'd, I'd say, provided a good Rorschach test for people's views on AI. Surprising how many of them are expecting progress to stop. Here's a couple of things that other people said that I, I just like, I was like, I got to respond to this. Maybe we'll put a Twitter thread out as well. You know, these are people, and I, I only engage with people here that I think like either I really respect, which is the baseline, or, you know, have a lot of credibility one way or another. So, you know, these are sharp people, but I think like not serving the broader, you know, public as well as they could with, with some of these tweets. So Naveen Rao, CEO, founder of Mosaic ML. We've had two um, members of the Mosaic team on. They exited for north of a billion dollars. They have real chops, no doubt about that. He says, well, the belief was fun while it lasted. Sparks don't always lead to fire, I guess. So, you know, again, I'm 
Naveen, please come correct me as, as to my interpretation here, but this reads to me like somebody saying, I am wise. All of you have gotten carried away, but I'm, I was too cool for that the whole time. And, you know, the sparks specifically refers to the Microsoft research paper sparks of AGI where, you know, there was obviously, you know, with this title like that, you're going to stir up some commentary, but I would say, you know, rather than sort of mocking that paper and certainly again, this paper does not invalidate all the findings of what GPT-4 can do that Microsoft Research has put out. So I would really endorse actually people going and reading the Microsoft reports on frontier model capabilities. They did one, the original Sparks of AGI was on GPT-4. Then they've more recently come out with one on GPT-4V. And even more recently than that, they've come out with one on GPT-4's impact on science focusing on a lot of like hard science areas, like material science and biochem and chemistry, solving partial differential equations, hard, hard problems. Across all of these, I think they, you know, you can, of course, you know, refine and quibble and do your own, you know, variations on their experiments and you should. But if you go read those papers, I think you're going to come away with a pretty significant and, and reasonably accurate understanding of what frontier models can do today. Uh, so to, you know, to say that like their, you know, sort of sense that some important thresholds on some path toward AGI are being crossed with the most recent models to, to sort of, you know, mock that with this narrow result, you know, I think is just like, that's a total non sequitur. And, you know, I think people should, rather than embracing that, I think they should go read those papers and I think they'll come away with a much much better understanding. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Another one that caught my attention, this is from Arvind Narayanan, who is a professor at Princeton and author of a book and I think also a blog called AI Snake Oil, wrote that this paper isn't even about LLMs, but seems to be the final straw that popped the bubble of collective belief. And again, we have this notion of belief and gotten many to accept the limits of LLMs about time. If emergence merely unlocks capabilities represented in pre-training data, the gravy train will soon run out. Know, there's a lot to take apart there. For one, the paper is not about LLMs. So, you know, why we would be using this very small, you know, kind of toy model line, you know, and sign graph prediction research result already by the, you know, again, with the add a little noise and it does in fact generalize, and that's already out there. Why would we would be using that as sort of a way to, you know, in shape our, our big picture beliefs about what the biggest and most powerful systems are capable of? Like that just doesn't make sense. So I don't think anyone, you know, should advocate for sort of extrapolating up from these like toy examples to worldview scale beliefs. That just seems like totally misguided. But the other thing that I think is even more important here is if emergence, and there's been a lot of, you know, debate, what is emergence? Is it, is it a mirage? You know, whatever. I would say probably the most interesting definition to me is capabilities that either come on very quickly or are just like highly unexpected relative to, you know, kind of baseline performance. And we definitely have some examples of those. Another really interesting definition would be things that humans can't do. And we do have examples of those 
from all sorts of narrow AI systems, and even now, more recently, some from like GPT-4 type systems as well. But whatever, whatever definition you want to use for emergence. If emergence merely unlocks capabilities represented in pre-training data, the gravy train will soon run out. I don't think that's true at all. I think that what is what this is missing is that the training data that we have and the training data that we might expand to start using is so vast that it is bound to contain all sorts of information, which if grokked, will lead to superhuman capabilities. So, you know, to take one kind of mundane example, you know, it's, it's not mundane, really. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing, but it's so, you know, we adjust very quickly. I would say it's probably safe to say that GPT-4 can speak the world's languages better than any human that has ever existed. No single human would I put against GPT-4 in a world's languages speaking contest. Now, you could say, well, that's not surprising because all the languages are in the training data. Sure. But what else is in the training data that an AI might be able to pick up on that humans cannot, individual humans cannot do? I think one very obvious thing that is likely to start to happen, especially given the success we've seen in the multimodality with, with vision, is that people are going to start to throw other modalities into language models. Of course, this is already happening, but you know, has it really been scaled up to the degree that it might? Not yet. Let's say if GPT-4 is trained on 10 trillion tokens, what if the next version has a couple trillion tokens worth of genomic data in there or proteomic data? I don't think it's even hard to argue at this point, really, uh, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if the resulting models have capabilities that no humans have ever had. We are not good at looking at raw DNA sequences and predicting things. We do build tools to do that, and we can do it certainly somewhat well. But, you know, just like we saw AlphaGo play like the, you know, the mythical Go move that no human would have ever played, but it was actually genius. I think there's probably that level of information in just a huge boatload of DNA data that, you know, we haven't even built tools to to work on just yet. And we have, you know, there was a, just this week, again, I mean, it's a, the timelines are unbelievably short. There was a paper out of Google from authors, including Vivek and Tao, who were on for our MedPalm 2 episode, where they are starting to do that. They are starting to get real insight into, you know, various genetic uh, interactions and, you know, what's causing what in ways that, you know, are genuinely novel. They're like, they're getting useful, novel hypotheses um, out of their, their latest MedPalm system. I think the key concept here that I really want to focus on is there's a lot more represented in the current training data and a lot, lot more represented in the expanded training data that might go into a GPT-5 type thing than any human could ever read or process. And there's bound to be the, enough signal for a sufficiently powerful system to develop capabilities that no human has. What those are, you know, some of them we can probably predict, others we probably cannot predict. Um, you know, as, as Sam Altman recently said, it's a fun guessing game for us to, you know, to guess what GPT-5 is going to be able to do. Uh, but I do not think that the gravy train is running out as long as we're continuing to hyperscale. 
And I would say like, even, even the argument, you know, that, that is given here is kind of self-defeating because it's just already clear that AIs can do superhuman things in some ways based on the vastness of the training data. Uh, I don't think this is, you know, a, a snake oil question. Jim Fan was another one, you know, and this one, I, this was like, I love this dude's work, but his comment was transformers are not elixirs, kind of a similar comment. Machine learning 101, got to cover the test distribution in training. Again, this is like this notion that those of us that have the fundamentals, you know, those of us that did the machine learning 101, we know that, you know, these kind of basic things are, are true. But again, it does not follow from the idea that you got to cover the test distribution in training that things can't generalize in interesting or unexpected ways because the training data contains more than we have extracted from it. That is just like, you know, I think manifestly obvious upon, you know, any serious reflection. So, you know, I just, I hate to see this kind of stuff because I'm like, the worst thing, you know, I think people can do is kind of confuse the public or leave people feeling like, hey, this isn't that big of a deal or it's nothing to worry about or it's nothing I need to, you know, spend any of my time preparing for when in fact, like, I think the exact opposite is true, you know, and I, I, I want to see these thought leaders giving the, you know, the broader public uh, a clearer sense that like, these are going to be super powerful systems that, you know, they, they in all likelihood are, they already do have, and they are all in all likelihood going to develop many more capabilities that no human has. And, you know, just whatever little, you know, nuanced, uh, fine grain research results we may find along the way, like that big picture is already pretty clear. You know, can, it, it can be an S curve and the top of that S curve can still be higher than human. And this is where I, I kind of disagree with Amjad or I would, you know, I would challenge his thinking. His comment was, and this is again, you know, there, you would struggle to find uh, many companies that I'm a bigger fan of than Replit. And you can listen to our Replit episodes for confirmation of that. Um, so, you know, as CEO of Replit, I definitely have a, a tremendous amount of respect for everything that Amjad has built and accomplished. But his comment, I don't agree with. He comments, I came to this conclusion, this conclusion meaning, you know, LMs can't generalize me on the training data sometime last year. And it was a little sad because I wanted so hard to believe in LLM mysticism. And again, there's that belief concept and that there was something there, there. And this, you know, again, I'm like, I don't think that the question is like mysticism or you know, a there, there, you know, some that almost suggests like that we're into some, you know, debate about consciousness or like subjective experience, or, you know, is it a moral patient, you know, something that we like owe some responsibilities to. I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions there that kind of get evoked in my mind when I read, you know, is there a there, there, uh, or not. All of that is like super interesting, but it's kind of outside of the scope of a question of like, again, can the technology that we have already, and certainly at future scale, learn things that people don't know, develop capabilities that people don't have. It's like obvious that the answer at this point is yes. And you don't need to uh, appeal to any sort of mysticism to believe that. You just need to look at the systems that currently exist, look at what they can do that no individual human can do. And again, I'll just, you know, language itself is like a pretty good, you know, starting point. I don't know why we would want to dismiss that point of view with mysticism.
if I were to speculate, you know, I would think it, it is kind of a this whole thing is being kind of used as a prop for a more political debate around what should be done. But, you know, I would I would really encourage everyone to separate their analysis of what is from what should be done about it. If we start to mislead or like, you know, embrace pretty obviously wrong headed conclusions about what is, it cannot be good for our, uh, you know, downstream discourse of what should be done about it. And, you know, I think the this was kind of put into maybe here, I don't have to speculate, but Twitter user Accelerate Harder says in response to all this, the AI executive order will only continue to look more foolish from here. And, you know, I don't think that necessarily reflects everybody's point of view that I've kind of highlighted in this discussion so far. But I think it is kind of, you know, a big part of where this is coming from. The idea that we don't want regulation. We know that. So if we know that, then we see any evidence that AI could be like super strong or could get out of control as encouraging the regulation. So we want to downplay that. And if we do see, and it's, you got to kind of grasp for it at this point, but if we do see evidence that like AIs are not going to become super strong or they're not, you know, they, they won't ever, you know, overtake humanity in, in key ways, then we really want to amplify that. And so I do think a lot of this was rushing to amplify this ultimately misleading statement about what is as a way to promote a agenda about what should be done. And I would, you know, really uh, strongly encourage everyone to keep those things distinct in their minds. You know, it's just honestly like good intellectual hygiene, I would say, to do so. And also just, you know, from an attitude standpoint, this label that I've given myself of the AI scout definitely is uh, an homage to Julia Galef and her book, The Scout Mindset where she contrasts, and maybe we should have her on to talk about this. She contrasts the scout mindset, which is really focused on what is true, what is really going on, against the soldier mindset, which is how can I advance my side in some intellectual or ideological conflict? And I just think, you know, this may be the time to build, but it's definitely not the time for ideology. You know, it really is a time to these things are so confusing. The surface area is so vast. There are so many surprises. They are weird. They, you know, I, I always kind of say they're more like alien intelligence than human intelligence, AI, alien intelligence. Keep all those things in mind. The scout mindset is the mindset that we need to have. And if there's any, you know, kind of criticism blanket that I would put on, on this group, it's like, that's a little bit like soldier mindset. And that's not really what we need right now. Let me just quickly give uh, some credit to people that I thought had good comments. And then we can move on to, well, I'll, I'll let you um, challenge me anywhere you like. And then we can move on to part two. Twitter user, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but people will know him. Visacon V says, quote, don't feel bad, GPT. Few humans can either, meaning few humans can extrapolate beyond their training data. I think that is actually a pretty profound point. You know, there aren't that many Einstein level eureka moments where people are like, Nobody's ever conceptualized this this way before, but here I go. Most people are not doing that. It is super important when it happens. And, you know, thus far, it largely has not been demonstrated by, you know, even by, even by the, the, the biggest and best language models. 
But it is notable that like this is not, you know, a general capability that we observe in people either, you know, to go well, to go outside of, you know, what we've seen or experienced in our lives. You know, a couple kind of fairly generic comments. A guy named Eugene uh, Vinitsky was the first I saw to say people are drastically overreacting to this paper or just not reading it. That's another one where I'm like, yeah, guys, <laughs> read the damn thing. You know, people are tweeting, retweeting and quote tweeting on these things so fast. At this point, you know, I think we should all kind of take a breath and try to actually understand the research before commenting on it. Not too much to ask in my view. Ethan Mollick, I, I always find to be informative. I think his commentary on this was very good. Seems relevant that we are increasingly throwing all of human written and visual history into the training data. Exactly. You know, it's like, broken record, but you don't have to generalize beyond the training data if just generalizing to the training data is enough for superhuman capabilities. That's really kind of the key question. Are we going to see superhuman capabilities? I'm not saying we necessarily are, but we we certainly know that if you understood everything that is in the training data, you would be superhuman. So, you know, will they get there? Maybe, maybe not. But it's not going to be because like the training data doesn't have more to tell us than we've already been able to glean from it. Meg Mitchell, I also thought had a, a pretty interesting and, and kind of nuanced comment that, that was interpreting the paper the right way. Um, and she's definitely somebody, you know, I've disagreed with on kind of the importance of tail risks. She tends to focus much more on, you know, near term, you know, immediate harms, biases, all of which I do think are important too. But historically with her, it's been this kind of like, don't worry about the big problems. Those are all fake. It's the small now problems that are important. I would say, you know, broaden your view and, and take both into account. But I did think her take on this was quite uh, sharp. She said, if this is reproducible for LMs, huge if for one thing, uh, then if you care about the safety of AI systems, it's another reason why we need to measure data with at least the same scientific rigor as we use to evaluate models. By understanding the data, we can understand what the model may do. And that really is the spirit that the original research was in. If we can, you know, engineer a data set, then we can, you know, potentially find these, you know, kind of mixtures of, and maybe we can even sort of start to begin to define what the boundaries will be of what something can do. I think in view of the noise result, it's like very hard to take all the noise out. You know, it's it's easy to take the to to modulate noise when you're like predicting graphs and you know love straight lines and sine curves. There really is no path to take the noise out of high scale, you know, training data sets. So I don't think there is a way in which this really will generalize to large scale LMs, but at least think, you know, that that framing is the right framing. Um, and then finally, I want to highlight uh, Lee Sharkey, who's one of the founders of Apollo Research. This is a new red team organization that recently put out some research on creating certain conditions under which GPT-4 would deceive its user, which is something that I never experienced as a GPT-4 red teamer. Um, but you know, I want to read their stuff a little bit more closely, and it will probably be the subject of a future episode. That is a key question in my mind. Does the AI start to deceive its user? But he said, you know, the reactions to this are insane. It's amazing to watch people deny something blatantly true that is right in front of their eyes. Of course, GPT can generalize, literally just say anything new that it can't have seen in the training data, and you'll see. So that's Lee Sharkey. Uh, definitely, you know, some interesting research coming out of that group. And um, I thought sharp analysis on this particular point. So uh, follow, uh, follow Lee Sharkey on Twitter. You know, here's where we kind of start start to turn a little bit more toward the policy discussion. And I would say a little bit because, 
again, it's all kind of implicit. And, you know, we're not yet talking about an actual policy proposal, let alone a let alone a policy, let alone a regulation, let alone a law. What we're talking about in part two is one person and a, and a number of kind of co-signers who posted about some voluntary responsible AI commitments. The person, and again, probably everybody's seen this tweet at this point, if only for the retweets. Apologies if I'm not saying the name correctly. Himataneha. So he posts on Twitter, today, 35 plus VC firms with another 15 plus companies representing hundreds of billions in capital have signed the voluntary responsible AI commitments from Responsible Labs, the nonprofit I co-founded. There are some notable companies and names in here. Um, probably the biggest company in the original tweet is Inflection. You know, big funds include SoftBank, uh, include General Catalyst, include Insight Partners, Intel Capital, IVP, Lux Capital. Uh, one former guest, which is Arthur AI, also uh, was on the list. So, you know, it's not a huge list, but, you know, there's definitely some notable participants. And here's the five commitments that they have voluntarily made. One, a general commitment to responsible AI, including internal governance. Two, appropriate transparency and documentation. Three, risk and benefit forecasting. Four, auditing and testing. Five, feedback cycles and ongoing improvements. They also put out like a handbook for best practices for this stuff. And here's the part that I thought kind of was the, you know, the clearest articulation of the argument. It's kind of a long post, but here's the, my highlight. We strongly believe in the power of AI to transform our world for the better. Our role as investors is to advocate for our startups and the innovation economy from day one. It's almost worth reading again. We strongly believe in the power of AI to transform our world for the better. Our role as investors is to advocate for our startups and the innovation economy from day one. Everybody saw the executive order last month. The reaction in the Valley has generally been to denounce it. The reality is that right now it's largely just reporting requirements. However, there is a risk that it devolves into regulation that slows innovation down and makes America and its businesses uncompetitive. But the right path is not to be antagonistic toward DC. We in the Valley need to learn that this is not about regulation versus innovation, but about innovation at the intersection of technology, policy, and capital. We have to embrace collaboration with our elected leaders. And as investors, we must hold ourselves accountable for what we fund and found. Okay. Now, I did not sign, I did not co-sign this. In fact, I've not actually co-signed any of the, you know, statements that people have, have, you know, signed. Why? I'm just a little bit kind of generally averse to like oath swearing. And I find it not super conducive to the scout mindset that I want to preserve to like be signing on to things. Then I have to defend those things. And, you know, maybe don't necessarily agree with everything. I wasn't even asked to sign on to this one, but you know, in general, I'm not like a big oath swearer, but you would think that the sky is falling from the reaction, which has broadly been pretty hostile to this set of voluntary responsible AI commitments that these, you know, 50 organizations have made. And I would say, you know, this is basically just common sense, you know, with some of it, you could kind of say, well, hey, in my particular context, you know, I don't maybe need to do every last point that you recommend in your playbook. That's why, again, I'm, I'm a big believer in continuing to exercise judgment, you know, and I'm not signing on to this in, in any sort of blood oath, but a general commitment to responsible AI, including internal governance. Okay, uh, that's pretty general. 
appropriate transparency and documentation? Well, we're left to kind of interpret what's appropriate. Risk and benefit forecasting. I mean, I would think you'd be doing that in almost any, you know, significant upgrade or release of a product, right? Um, certainly want to figure out, like, is this going to work for our customers? It seems almost, you know, pretty consistent with that. Auditing and testing. This is maybe one that, you know, would be a bigger burden on some companies relative to what they're used to doing in terms of software testing. But, you know, it feels appropriate to me. Um, and again, you know, there's an appropriateness. How deep do you need to go? It depends on your use case. If you're doing a very narrow use case, you know, like at Waymark, we help people make video scripts. The worst thing that those video scripts could be, we help them make videos and the language model writes the script, I should say. But, you know, the worst thing that those things could be would be like hostile or toxic or racist or something. And like that would be bad. Uh, but, you know, it's a fairly contained harm relative to some other possible harms. So I don't think we should necessarily be held to the same standards that like a, you know, frontier lab would be. But nevertheless, like it's on us to, you know, make a good product. And at a minimum, you know, we should be confident that it's not going to go off the rails and like start antagonizing our users. Like we have seen this year from Microsoft as a reminder. So, you know, we're, we're only nine months out from the launch of Bing chat and, and Bing chat going so far off the rails as to tell a user to divorce his wife. I don't think it's like, you know, crazy to think, Hey, maybe we should do a little more testing, you know, with our AI products than we used to do. We've got an object example of what happens when you rush it out the door and fail to do that. And it, you know, can really blow up on your face and be in the front page of the New York times. Is this something that's like altruistic to the public? I think, yes. Is it something that's in your interest as a business to make sure that your shit is working as you intend it to work? I would also say yes. And feedback cycles and ongoing improvements. I mean, again, if you're just, if you're building any sort of software product, that's like basically canon, you know, sort of discipline of product iteration, um, just kind of applied to AI with, you know, a little bit of kind of fleshing out of best practices. So it seems like pretty mundane, right? Maybe I don't want to sign it because I'm not an oath signer. Maybe some of these things are a little bit more than I think I need in my particular context. But it hardly seems like the basis for an ideological war. And yet that is exactly what the, you know, the, the reaction has been. I mean, I could, I could read some of these in detail. But here's uh, Balaji, obviously friend of uh, the network and friend of some of our shows. Free internet means free AI. I like Hemant and many of the people on this proposal, but fundamentally disagree with the philosophy of capitulation therein. We will fight government control over compute with everything we have. So my initial just take on this is it's an ideological position. People have made some voluntary commitments to try to uphold some certain standards and to call it a philosophy of capitulation is framing the entire the entire situation, the entire technology revolution in an ideological frame, which again, I just don't see why we need to do that. Um, I do, well, I anticipate some of what I think, you know, the concerns are, but let's hear them from you first and then I'll, you know, uh, give my reaction to that. The concern here is that this is a Trojan horse or a wedge into um, sort of a governing body that has the more, you know, sort of reputational credibility and, and then the legal ability to regulate who or who not can can innovate. And we saw 
a lot of these players who are complaining saw what happened with social media over the past decade, where the people who were building the social media companies were very contrite. They were very apologetic. They were very naive. And as a result, they got absolutely dominated by sort of regulatory bodies on the on the censorship front. And they lost the sort of credibility war. They lost the moral war. And it's it's because they were very reasonable in the same way that this this note that Hamant has is very reasonable. But the enemies of social media companies were not so reasonable, right? New York Times calls itself the literal truth, right? It doesn't do as much introspection as as, as, as Facebook does or let itself get regulated in the same way. And in a vacuum, things like this are, are very credible the, the, or very reasonable. The concern is what they, what are the implications of it and what they can be used to do. And Mark Andreessen likes to talk about how there's an alternative world where you know, we're in the 90s again, or we're, when the internet is getting started, and there's a sort of governing body that determines who can or who cannot start a website. And before before having to do so, you have to go register it and, you know, imagine all the permissionless innovation that would have never occurred as a result of it. So yeah, you, you, you've anticipated, well, people are concerned about what this implies, and people are concerned about sort of conceding even an inch because they know they're in a war. They know that there are people who, uh, it's the Baptist and the bootleggers thing. Some people have, have good faith, and that's great, and other people don't. Uh, and they, they seek to uh, either on the regulatory capture side, or, or they just, they may have good faith, but they absolutely think capitalism is evil and seek to regulate it, and they will use your, your good norms against you. And this is why sort of moderate people always lose, is because extremists you know, tend to just use moderate principles against them uh, because they they don't don't apply them the, themselves. The extremists don't apply their principles of of good faith or, or free speech or whatever. But when a moderate sort of goes against their own principles, they'll say, "Hey, wait! You believe in free speech, or you believe in you know good faith, or you believe in being reasonable." And so that's partially why the EAC people are trying to match the extremists of the people who seek to uh, sort of you know regulate them. Like, uh, you know, there was an AI group yesterday, uh, the Tescreel, uh, I forget, Timnit, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gebru, I can't exactly remember her name, uh, advocating for, you know, irresponsible AI's community support for Palestine, right? So there's, there's obviously like, like a political um, agenda between what, behind what they're trying to do. Anyways, that's a bit of a distraction. I, I've, I've made my point as to why people see this as a as a concern because they see it as as morally justifying a small amount of people determining you know who can or cannot innovate and they don't they don't want to concede even an inch that could that could lead to that. It's only a war if everybody involved thinks it's a war. You know, I, I don't think there's any reason that we should assume it's a war, and if we approach it in a non-war framing, I submit we will probably have a lot better results. You know, it's, it's comical and it's kind of don't look up-ish, but like if you imagine an actual alien life form showing up on Earth and dropping in on us, you know, one would hope <laughs> that we would come together first, you know, and try to figure out what is this thing? Are they coming in peace or not? You know, what capabilities do they have that we don't have? Is there some, is this something we, you know, are going to benefit from? Is this something that we are going to be harmed by? Is it a weird, you know, combination of that? It might happen the same way that it might be, you know, our response to literal aliens might be like immediately polarized. But in that, you know, as long as we're like imagining sort of fictional worlds, you know, we notably did not have a 
committee on who can start a website in the 90s. So, you know, we can imagine like a lot of terrible decisions that we did not, in fact, make. We have no actual rules. Anybody can do whatever they want. We have one, you know, kind of toe in the water reporting requirement if you want to make something 10 times bigger in compute terms than GPT-4. And that is going to probably affect five companies next year, five to 10, maybe. And they're not required to do anything other than tell the government that they're doing it. Okay, that's not, a, that's not like super heavy handed as it is right now. But my other thing is, if you want to avoid regulation, just let's go back to the original poster, you know, the, the original notion here, it's our role to advocate for startups and the innovation economy from day one. There is a risk that this will devolve into regulation that slows innovation down and makes America and its businesses uncompetitive. The surest way to that outcome is a self-radicalizing technology sector that can't even pay lip service to protecting the public. All these people have done is said, we have some best practices for how we're going to build AI products. And they have been absolutely shit on by the technology industry at large. And nobody is sympathetic to that. The people are not with the technology sector on this. Every survey, and there are dozens at this point, that look at the public perception of AI, the public wants government action on this. This is, by the way, across parties, too. It's not like inherently a partisan issue. Neither, you know, like the Republican voter in today's world is not like super favorable to big tech. And the Democrats maybe are in some ways on like certain censorship questions, but they're not when it comes to like concentration of power questions. So like nobody is really on big tech side here. Neither party nor the public are sympathetic to the view that we should just not even try to like do a good job. And what is the alternative to this? The alternative is we're going to shit on the people that are trying to establish some best practices. And then that's what's going to bring down the heavy handed regulation. Like it's, it's, you know, it seems if you want to prevent that regulation, show me that there's no problem. Show me that you have it under control, right? I mean, social media, whatever, it's, that's super complicated. I wouldn't claim expertise in like what social media companies should or shouldn't have done or, you know, whether they could have done better. Clearly, they could have done better on some things, many things along the way. You know, you're not going to scale to every country in the world and 3 billion, you know, monthly users without some issues. But if we think that was disruptive or we think that was like, you know, a heavy handed response, either way, AI is going to be way more than that. It's going to be way more disruptive and it's going to bring a way more heavy handed response than what social media platforms have brought on themselves. Social media platforms at the end of the day, you know, until recently, are still just people talking to each other with like a layer of sort of curation and amplification, which is where I do think the platforms have some responsibility. But now we're entering into a world where, you know, you've got AIs that can plan, that can reason, that can use tools, not necessarily super well today, but keep in mind two years ago, they couldn't do it at all. So people are rightly outside of the field, outside of those that feel like, oh, I know how it works. You know, I, I can hand code a transformer. Therefore, I know what's going on. Therefore, I can, you know, confidently say nothing bad is going to happen. Outside of that set or the purely ideological, people are looking at this rate of change and they're like, I don't know what happens next. Many of the leaders in the field are admitting that they don't know what happens next. 
And some of the leaders in the field are shitting on their brethren in the tech sector for just putting out some best practices. So I think that this is about to be the most self-defeating technology, you know, position that the, that the technology sector could really take. And again, you know, I, look, the original post, you know, is framed as let's avoid heavy handed regulation that strangles our ability to innovate by self-regulating, by holding ourselves to some standards. Good God, you know. I support self-regulation. And in, in general, I, I think a more productive stance would be that the EAC uh, folks come out with their own, do as you say, basically show that we've got things under control. I, I think that that would be the best response. Also, I understand, I sympathize with the, actually, I like Hamant. I, I, I think they, they do good work. Um, but I, I sympathize with the critique of what uh, Hamant is about, which is not, it's not just this post in a vacuum. It's this broader um, idea or philosophy. I don't want to use ideology; it's heavy-handed, but philosophy of uh, sort of responsible tech, which I think in the in the in the pro tech view does not give enough support or encouragement for or, or explanations for why tech is so good. Remember that we we live in an ecosystem, and this is why Mark felt compelled to write his manifesto that is heavily anti-tech or anti-innovation that is far more concerned. We see this with the FDA and even with self-driving cars, right? There's way more concerned about the lives that you could see in front of you that are, um, you know, affected negatively, right? A self-driving car by accidentally kills someone. Oh, we must get rid of self-driving cars because they can't see or, or it's not as easy to imagine all the lives saved, right? Self-driving cars is, is your favorite example of your, your accelerationist. Well, we have people that say that they're absolutely dangerous. And so if, if, if someone comes out with, hey, responsible self-driving cars, um, you know, similar to Hamant just did, in some ways you'd sympathize, of course, we want to be responsible. In other ways, you see, hey, this is really just justification to the people that want to get rid of self-driving cars when really it's going to save so many lives. And so if we say we want responsible self-driving cars, it's also in, you know, incumbent upon us to also just always reiterate how many lives this is going to save because that's harder to see it's harder to see the amazing impact of a, of a drug that you know could could save lives or or social media or or even ai right uh, i mean it, it's it's much easier to be scared of a new technology than it is to embrace it and so this is what i see the eac folks is trying to correct is is just constantly kind of shift the overton window or shift the conversation to reminding people about the the positives of, of of this because it's 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 easier to imagine the negatives and to give um, credibility to, to to the negatives and to emphasize the negatives. So that is partly how I see this uh, th this critique of this this letter. But I but I do agree that that self regulation uh, could avoid ham handed regulation. I, I think it's just that they don't want or partially that they don't want Hamant or that, that sort of philosophy to be the spokesperson for it. To be to be the voice of it because it's too European. It's too like too much like the EU. Too much like it's too negative on tech. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it comes from the wrong perspective, at least in the EAC view, which which I sympathize with on 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 this issue. Yeah, I mean, I guess a couple thoughts there. You know, I've uh, said my EAC prayers on this uh, episode already. So uh, you know, I don't know who jumps into the middle of this podcast, but if you missed that, it was at the top. So, you know, I'm, I'm probably sympathetic on this too, but like imagine for a second if the self-driving car companies took the EAC perspective, it would make no sense. What if they came out to the public when there was like a fatal accident and they were like, fuck you all, 
We're doing this. We don't care. Some people are going to die. That's the way it is. We have no standards. We refuse to, you know, put our put our put any sort of stake in the ground around what we're going to do to protect the public. And you're just going to like it. They would be out of business in two seconds. They, of course, are not doing that. It would be insane for them to do that. And I, I kind of contend that, like, it's insane for the AI builders to do that, given the uneasy mood of you know, the public and the regulators and basically everybody else but themselves. And they are, you know, what's funny about them, the reason I kind of paired these two things is like, on the one hand, you have a lot of people who are like, there's nothing to worry about. This technology isn't that powerful. But these people aren't saying that. They are saying that the technology is powerful. They are saying it's going to be transformative. And yet they refuse to take on any responsibility for that. And that is where I'm like, it may be, as you say, that they're sort of trying to shift the Overton window. What I would say to them is, in response to that, if that is in fact the strategy, is like, I would recommend communicating less strategically and more earnestly. What do you really believe? Let's just get, you know, there's, there's enough challenge just coming to like uh, clarity on what is true. So let's just start with that. You know, can we just say what we really think is actually happening? How powerful is this technology? How risky is this technology? You will not get any of that from the EAC crowd. There is there is a sort of, you know, you talk about like mysticism. There's like a mysticism. Uh, there's sort of a, it's a universal law of the universe that like everything's headed this way. And, it's, you know, we're going to be eclipsed by AIs. And like, maybe that's even a moral good thing or whatever. But we have nothing to worry about. I don't really see how that, you know, can work. And if it is strategic communication, I think it's badly going to backfire in all honesty. I guess my final challenge to this group would be this. There is ex existing law that governs product liability. And if you think you have nothing to worry about, then, you know, would you object then? Would you, or would you accept working under existing product liability law? And I, I went to my favorite uh, AI answer en engine, Perplexity, to get a little clarity on what is the nature of product liability law in the United States. Two, two quotes that Perplexity gave me stood out to me. One, consumer product liability law in the United States refers to the legal responsibility of all parties involved in the manufacture and distribution of a product for any damage caused by that product. This includes manufacturers of component parts, assembling manufacturers, wholesalers, and retail store owners. So, as I read that, the default situation is that if you have a hand in building a product, whether it's an AI product or, you know, a toy in a, in a toy store, and it hurts someone, then you can be held responsible for that. And then here's another further quote from Perplexity. In a product liability case, the law requires that a manufacturer exercise a standard of care that is reasonable for those who are experts in manufacturing similar products, which I think is pretty interesting because what I kind of see as, as happening here and what I hope really does happen is that there is a industry-driven race to the top. Race to the top is, I think, a, a phrase that, I mean, obviously it's been coined in many different contexts, but Anthropic, I think, has kind of led with this notion of we want to create a race to the top. We want to demonstrate that it is possible to build frontier technology build a successful business on that technology and have the highest safety and you know ethical standards in the game. 
And, you know, they've obviously done quite well on that front so far. With this new set of standards, you know, it does sort of create not a law that you must follow some rule, but it does start to create if if these, you know, expert standards were to become acknowledged, it does create the potential for liability. So I'm kind of like, maybe that is is some of the motivation for why people would be so against this, because if it if if it can be dismissed or if it, it can be prevented from being understood as a reasonable standard for experts in manufacturing similar products, then, you know, we don't have to worry about liability. But again, I would invite anyone, uh, you know, whether it's Beth Jezos or uh, Jeremy Howard or Martin Screlly or Martin Casado, former guest from A16, if he wants to come back, or Steven Sanofsky, you know, who compares this to, you know, that 90, gives that 90s scenario of, geez, imagine if this, you know, prevailed when databases were invented. I mean, look, dude, a database is an inert tool. The AI, you know, it can plan, it can reason, it can use tools. Again, maybe not that well yet, but two years ago, couldn't do it at all. I would invite anybody to come out and tell me why, if they really want to defend this view, why there should not be product liability in AI products, especially if we have nothing to worry about. I agree with you that um, the current approach of kind of being more about vibes than concrete arguments or not, you know, sort of putting a stake, stake in the ground, as you mentioned, or just kind of being somewhat laissez-faire is not as effective as I think it could be or not as reassuring to people who would otherwise be supporters. Uh, and, and maybe maybe you're maybe you're in that camp, given your accelerationist, uh, you know, bona fides as you as you established in, earlier in the episode. Um, I think a more effective tack would be to talk about one self-regulation, as we've discussed, but two, also the real dangers of uh, of regulation and 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 really uh, you know hammer home the history here as it relates to social media as it relates to nuclear as it relates to the FDA as it relates to just just explaining public choice theory in general and saying hey we've got a couple we've got scary options here you know we think this this path is the least scary we're going to make it as as uh, comforting as possible as encouraging as possible but uh, but the you know the concern of going too far is is outweighs the the concern of of not going far enough, even for the goals that that we all share and establishing common ground. I think that would be in a more effective path or a more reassuring path. And uh, yeah, I'd love to have Beth or any any of the people you mentioned. They're 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 friends. They're 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 great people in my book. Let's let's continue the conversation. I, I think this was a a good uh, a good opening volley. Love it. Well. It's uh, always a pleasure. Let's you know resist the temptation to polarize the discourse prematurely. And um, I'm all for painting a positive future, but I, I really think there is a bubble in which a lot of these folks are operating in which they are kind of missing the fact that the public is not with them on this. You know, the public needs reassurance and that the elected leaders will be doing the public's you know, with bidding, they will be following the public will if they come down in a heavy handed way. So don't invite it. You know, I don't want that either. I'm an AI application developer. I don't want to have a bunch of stupid bullshit reporting requirements put on me when I use, you know, 10 orders of magnitude less compute than OpenAI does. Nobody wants that. I don't want to have to click, you know, another stupid, you know, GDPR banner every time I want to use an AI product. There's plenty of ways that this can go stupid. 
but you know, don't be stupid. At, you know, the opposite of stupid is is not smart, right? And I think we're kind of right now. If I had to, this, that's an Eliezer um, original, but right now I kind of see the EAC as like imagining a stupid thing. And yeah, believe me, there's plenty of historical precedence. I'm with that, but we haven't done that stupid thing yet. We're imagining that we've done that stupid thing. We're polarizing ourselves to be the exact opposite of the stupid thing. And unfortunately, the opposite of stupid is not smart. <laughs> it's just another form of stupid. And we really need to be better scout mindset people and really focus on what is true before we you know, start loading everything into a, you know, a polarized uh, frame about what should be done. So yeah, uh, let's, uh, let's book some EAC uh, guests and see if we can get beyond the, uh, the polarized discourse and into some, um, you know, some real credible, positive vision. Perfect. Let's, uh, let, let's wrap on that. Uh, Nathan is always, uh, as always a pleasure. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.